Good morning. It's 10 o'clock and not a minute later. So let's turn to 2 Kings chapter 18. 2 Kings chapter 18, where we made it last week to verse 4 and had to leave off because of time. Second Kings 18.4. Before we landed in chapter 18, we spent many Sundays together in chapter 17. You probably thought we'd never get out of there. And in chapter 17, the greater part of it was devoted to the inspired writer stepping back and showing us the overall poor spiritual health of Israel and Judah, but mostly Israel there. And if you stopped reading at the end of that chapter, you might have thought Israel and Judah were without hope. Their king, Israel's king, was in prison. But when we met Hezekiah in chapter 18, you can't argue against the truth that he was a product of God's grace. He wasn't brought up in a wonderful home. His dad did evil in the sight of the Lord. And we made it to verse 4, where we read that Hezekiah removed the high places. And he broke down the images, and he broke in pieces the serpent that Moses had made. Because unto those days the children of Israel had burnt incense to that serpent, that brazen serpent. And the last part of our lesson took us back to Exodus chapter 20, where we were reminded of God's prohibition against the making of a graven image unto themselves. That brazen serpent on the pole had gone from being an object lesson and a type of the Lord Jesus Christ being lifted up, to now being an image to which the children of Israel burned incense. God never told them to burn incense in Moses' day when that pole was lifted up with the serpent on it, but they were to look upon it to be saved from those fiery serpents. And we finally noted last week that in John chapter 3, verses 14 through 15, Jesus clearly taught that the purpose of that serpent being lifted up in Moses' day was that he would be lifted up. So let's make a few more observations about this brazen serpent on the pole so we will be able to understand the significance of what Hezekiah did when he broke it into pieces. And remembering what we learned last week, we know that the people of Judah who had burned incense to the serpent sinned by serving a graven image. They were told not to make unto themselves any graven image, nor to bow down to them or serve them. And that's what they were doing with this graven image. And in doing so, in burning incense to the graven image, they were tossing aside the lesson about the lifted up serpent and 
Also, they were burning incense in a way God had not commanded them to do. Incense was to be burned on the altar of incense in the tabernacle. So if you don't remember that, we'll refresh your memory just a little. That when you approach the tabernacle from the eastern side, you first encountered the brazen altar and then the laver or laver of brass where there was water. And then you entered into the holy place. And as you look straight ahead to your left, there was a golden candlestick. And to the right, a table of showbread. And straight ahead was the altar of incense. And then after that was the veil that was over the Holy of Holies. And behind that was the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat. And so the altar of incense and the brazen altar had different purposes. And incense was to be burned on the altar of incense in the tabernacle. Uh, You wouldn't have to be a rocket scientist to figure that out, would you? If it's called the altar of incense, then you burn incense there. And incense represented the prayers of the saints. We'll look at a couple of passages that teach us that. Revelation chapter 8, verses 3 through 4. Revelation 8, verses 3 through 4. And another angel came and stood at the altar having a golden censer, and there was given unto him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense, which came with the prayers of the saints, ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. We also see the association between incense and prayer in Luke chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. Luke chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. In speaking of Zacharias, the priest, not the high priest, he was a Levite, he was a priest, that passage says, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense. And there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard. And thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John." That would be John the Baptist, not the Apostle John. So again, in that passage, just like the one in Revelation, you see that incense represents the prayers of the saints. That's what it's for. When you you think of incense, think of prayer. Think of a sweet-smelling savor to the Lord, which the prayer of his saints is, by the way. Now, while the use of 
incense in the Old Testament priesthood was commanded, it was very specific. And in fact, the brazen serpent was never found in the tabernacle anywhere. It wasn't to be constructed as a a part of the tabernacle, as an instrument, or as anything else. And the place for it was the place where God put it, and not somewhere else. The use of that brazen serpent was the use God ordained, and not something else. And the mixture of these religious practices, using images, misusing incense, is just what people do today in some religious assemblies. In fact, it's similar to what we observed when we were in chapter 16 of 2 Kings a few months ago, when King Ahaz had gone to Damascus and he beheld a great altar there. He thought, man, that's what we need right there. That's what will liven up the worship or that's what will get people's attention. And so he had Urijah the priest, who was a milquetoast priest, by the way, or he would have said, no way, king, don't you dare bring that. (laughs) We'll all die. But he built a great altar, so-called great altar, and put it next to the brazen altar, put it near it. And in doing that, he was trying to both satisfy a holy God and a sinful king, and you can't do both. You can't do both with two altars, and you can't do both by burning incense to a brazen serpent, because in both of those, God is displeased. Now let's look back in verse 4 again. At the very end of the verse, and he called it Nehushtan, that is Hezekiah called this brazen serpent. Brazen just means it's made out of brass. Called this brazen serpent on the pole, Nehushtan. And Nehushtan means a thing of brass. What was something made of brass in the tabernacle? Well, one thing was the altar that stood to the east of the laver that we call the brazen altar, that the Bible calls the brazen altar, before you entered into the holy place. And upon that altar, the brazen altar, upon that altar, burnt offerings were made. The sin offering, the burnt offering, the whole burnt offering, so forth. I could not find a place in the Old Testament, or the New Testament either, where incense was burned on the brazen altar. Now the altar of incense, which was in the holy place, just before the veil to the most holy place, was, made, was not made of brass. It was made of shittim wood, and it was overlaid with gold. If you remember the verse I read you out of Revelation 8, it said that that was a golden altar that was in view when the incense was uh, lifted up there at the prayers of the saints. So this incense altar was shittim wood overlaid with gold. And 
God specifically told the children of Israel that you will make no burnt offering or sacrifice on that incense altar. It was for one thing, to burn incense on. And knowing these things about the two altars in the tabernacle, the brazen altar and the altar of incense, and knowing that brass represents judgment and gold represents deity, that is the attributes and character of God, and that each of these altars is made with something different, one of gold and then one of brass, which is an alloy. They had their own purposes, and their purposes were not to be confused. If God had wanted the children of Israel, particularly the priests, to just do everything on one altar, he wouldn't have given them all these different furnishings in the tabernacle. He would have said, well, we'll just put the brazen altar out there, and that'll be good enough. You all can do sacrifices on it, burn incense on it, you can store showbread on it. You can keep a candle burning on one side of it there if you want. And in fact, you can just put a mercy seat over it. It wouldn't work out too well, would it? Because that thing was used to burn, to receive that blood. It was a, if you look at it visually, it was a messy place. It was a bloody altar. That's what it needed to be because it represented a bloody altar on which Jesus would die. And because of the differences in those two altars, then we learn further, prayer did not replace sacrifice. And sacrifice did not replace prayer. Burning incense to a brass serpent would be like offering a burnt offering upon the gold-covered incense altar. Neither was incense to be offered on the brazen altar because it was a place of sacrifice. And that teaches us that a prayer cannot save you. Imagine if rather than bringing a sin offering, an Israelite would have brought his prayer to be offered on that brazen altar. Well, a prayer would not have been accepted where a sacrifice was demanded. I'll say that again. A prayer is not accepted where a sacrifice is demanded. And the sin offering on that altar represented the sin offering Jesus made by his own death on the cross. And to bring a prayer rather than a live, clean animal to that altar, that brazen altar, was to deny the requirement of blood. To atone for sins. If the sinner's prayer crowd understood this, they'd never tell a lost person to bring his prayer to the cross to be saved. They'd say, You better believe in the sacrifice that was made on that cross, that that was for you. Where Jesus made himself the only acceptable offering for sin. And that's an offering that has to be accepted by the one who wants to be saved. So we might sum up Judah's and Israel's folly with this simple observation. Man's flesh just refuses to obey God and do things his way. When left to his own devices, man wants to do things his way.
So Hezekiah put an end to the worship of the serpent on the pole when he broke it into pieces. But he did so much more than just break an object into pieces. And after all, as the translation of the word Nehushtan tells us, it was just a thing of brass. Let's look back in our text now in verse 5, 2 Kings 18 and verse 5. Speaking of Hezekiah, he trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor any that were before him. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel. After all, that's what the Christian life is all about. Trusting the Lord for salvation, for sanctification, for all of our daily needs, for everything. And we have confidence that we may trust him and we don't have to trust in any other. I want you to listen to some of the benefits of trusting the Lord. Now, if you want to write these psalms down, you can. I took these phrases from several different psalms. Benefits of trusting the Lord. One, we will not be forsaken. That's in Psalm 910. Psalm 910. We are redeemed and shall never be left desolate. Psalm 3422. Psalm 3422. We shall dwell in the land and be fed. Psalm 37 3. 37 3. God will be our help and our shield. Psalm 115.10, 115.10, we shall be as Mount Zion, which cannot be removed, but shall abide forever. Psalm 125, verse 1, 125, verse 1. And the benefits and promises for those who trust in the Lord go on and on, but those are some of them. That's enough to get you excited, isn't it? And Hezekiah, by trusting in the Lord, enjoyed those benefits. And he's still enjoying them today. Did you know that? And back in the text, it says, So that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor any that were before him. This is amazing. In fact, it is astounding. Even David, his father, his forefather, was not like Hezekiah. It was already said in verse 3 that Hezekiah did that which was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David did. But you read it yourself. No king before or after Hezekiah was like Hezekiah. It's what God's word says, so it's true. If you ask somebody who was the greatest king in the Bible, in the Old Testament, why they might say David. They might say Solomon. They might say Asa or Josiah. And certainly those were great kings. But God himself said here through this inspired writer 
that there was nobody like Hezekiah before or after him. So we want to pay attention. Now, in what way was that true? Well, let's look at verse 6. For he clave to the Lord and departed not from following him, but kept his commandments which the Lord commanded Moses. For he clave to the Lord. The word clave we don't use now, but it means to follow hard, to stick together, to be joined. And in fact, we first see that Hebrew word used in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. Genesis 2 verse 24, where it says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Now that gives you a really good picture of Hezekiah cleaving to the Lord. He was one with the Lord. And as we read in the Genesis text, this is the truth about marriage, that one husband and one wife marry, and they become one flesh. Now, that's not literal. They're still two people there, but they're one flesh. Spiritually, in every way, they're one flesh. A man who cleaves to his wife is one flesh with her. A man who trusts in the Lord is one spirit with him. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 17 1 Corinthians 6 verse 17 says, But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. So that's someone who cleaves unto the Lord. He's one spirit. So by the way, cleaving unto the Lord doesn't mean trying to do some things that Jesus did, trying to emulate him, be kind of like him. It means being joined to him in one spirit. So this description of Someone who cleaves to the Lord. It's not just a nice thing to say about someone who seems to be spiritually minded. It was the basis on which Hezekiah reigned over Judah. Who he was in his inner man dictated how he reigned by his outer man. So that's all we get to see is the outer man. And the influence that the inner man has on the outer man. Now this does not mean Hezekiah was flawless. We know that. Clearly nobody is flawless. He was a sinner who needed to be saved by the grace of God. By believing in the Savior who would come. The one about whom the law and the prophets and the ordinances taught him. And he believed that. Because he clave unto the Lord, he was one spirit with him. Now it says that he, that Hezekiah departed not from following him. That is, from following the Lord. You follow the one to whom you cleave and you don't turn aside. Now the image this phrase gives us, or one that came to mind for me, was of a soldier who is not only loyal to his leader, but also who knows his place in that relationship. Let's pay a little closer attention to the word following here. It is normally translated as the word after. You could follow someone in 
two ways. Perhaps there are others, but two that came to mind. One is by simply following them wherever they go, as long as you like the direction they're going. If you're following someone this way, and then you will stop following them if the path they take you down is not to your liking. You really haven't given that leader any authority over you. You're not loyal. So you can stop following any time. Perhaps you've heard people describe themselves as Christ followers. Now, that can be misleading sometimes. That can mean more than one thing. As a Christian, as one who is joined to Jesus by his spirit, my spiritual nature, that is my inner man, my spiritual nature is to follow Christ, to follow hard after him. However, that term Christ follower can also mean a person who has decided to try to conform their actions to those of Jesus Christ. The unbeliever who examines the works of Jesus and the great mercy he had and the love he had toward his fellow man, admire him. Many religions admire Jesus. They do. They have nothing bad to say about him. Until it comes time for the talk about salvation. They'll say, well, no, he's not the only way. There are many ways. But in general, if somebody told you, well, I would like for my actions to reflect the actions of this man, Jesus, about whom history says was a wonderful person, then they may be a Christ follower, at least by their own definition. But such a group of Christ followers have not accepted the substitutionary atonement Jesus made for them on the cross. They have not been joined to him in one spirit. They've simply decided to try Jesus. You've heard that phrase, try Jesus. I think that is uh, an insult to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I certainly don't think everybody who says try Jesus means it that way, but when you examine it, it's not trying Jesus, it's trusting Jesus. That's what we need to tell people. But when they try Jesus, they become self-described Christ followers, it makes them feel better. It makes them feel religious and so on. But those Christ followers will fall away. Because they're not following Jesus as their Savior, but more so as their mentor. And you can change mentors, but you can't change saviors, and you wouldn't want to. A second way you can follow someone is to accept that person as your head. Now, this happens when you are joined to, with Christ by his spirit, when you've put your faith in his finished work. And so you accept that person as your head, so that no matter where that person leads you, you follow. You're not just behind that person in order, like the line leader, and then this guy is behind him, and this person is back here. You're not just following in that way. 
like children are in a lunch line. That term line leader came to mind. But instead, you have recognized that leader as your head. That he's not just in front of you, but he ranks above you in such a way that you belong to him. Your life belongs to him. And if your leader takes you down an uncomfortable path, maybe even a dangerous path, you follow him not because the path is to your liking or not, but because your life belongs to that leader. He is your head. You don't run ahead of him because that's not your position in this relationship. I want to show you a passage where Jesus teaches a lesson about following. It's found in Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 24. Matthew 16, verses 21 through 24, where it says, From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. Now, I'll stop right there. Jesus had just shown them the gospel. He had just explained to them how when he would suffer and die and be raised up the third day, that's the gospel. That's exactly the gospel. It says this about Peter after he rebuked him. Jesus, but he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense to me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, there's no doubt that Peter was a Christian at this time. So he was joined to the Lord by that one spirit. And when he rebuked the Lord, he did it in the flesh, didn't he? And that's a work of Satan. Peter's inner man, the one that is joined to Jesus by his spirit, was following Christ, but his flesh was not at that time. Peter yielded his flesh to Satan in that moment. And notice Jesus did not say, get thee behind me, Peter. Because he knew that wasn't the born again Peter who was rebuking his own Lord. He knew that was Satan working through Peter's flesh. And Jesus put Satan in his place. And where did he tell him to get him? He said, get behind me. Jesus outranked Satan. Satan was not the lion leader when Jesus was around. And he certainly was not the head over Jesus. You might say Satan followed Jesus around in a sense as he tried to tempt him in the wilderness. As he tried to get his disciples to deny him and all of that. But he didn't follow Jesus around because Jesus was his Savior. He wasn't joined to him 
in one spirit. Peter's inner man at that time was in its proper place following Jesus, but his flesh was not. There's no hope for our flesh. We cannot pretend to make it holy. We can't make it follow Jesus all the time. We've got that sin nature. That flesh is rotting, it's corrupting, it's destined for the grave. And therefore we have no confidence in it. And though we are commanded to yield our members, hands, feet, so forth, as instruments of righteousness unto God, Satan will fight to steer our flesh away from following God. But nevertheless, at the end of the passage we just read, Jesus said, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Notice these were Jesus' disciples, so they were already following him, at least outwardly. But inwardly, they followed him as their head. And in the end, many lost their lives for doing that. And hopefully these words, these observations will give us a better understanding of what it means to say, Hezekiah departed not from following the Lord. Look back in the text there in 2 Kings 18.5, and it says, but kept his commandments. I'm sorry, uh, verse 6, but kept his commandments. He departed not from following the Lord, but kept his commandments, which the Lord commanded Moses. Now, we've studied the word kept many times. And we understand now that it means to guard as a watchman would guard a city. In fact, the Hebrew word was first used in Genesis 2, verse 15, where it says, And the Lord took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. So he guarded it. I want to instead focus on a wonderful truth found in the words which the Lord commanded Moses, since we've studied the word kept or keep at length before. There were roughly 750 years between Israel's exodus from Egypt and Hezekiah's reign. In other words, Hezekiah lived about 750 years after Moses. And since the time Moses presented the law to the children of Israel, there had been prophets, some good, some bad. There had been kings, some good and some bad, and many man-made religions, which we've looked at on our way to this chapter. There had been new altars built, as well as images and groves and high places and so on. And what is very instructive to me here is that Hezekiah kept the commandments the Lord commanded Moses. He didn't do after the manner of his fathers. He didn't adopt the new modernized religion of the Assyrians. And what we may learn from this is crucial. Since the last inspired writer put down the last of God's words given to us, which was likely around 96 A.D. There have been many priests, false prophets, preachers, teachers, religious writings and books. In fact, more religions than we could hope to count in one day. 
And religious leaders have, during that time, characterized the Bible as outdated, irrelevant, cruel, racist, narrow, and many other negative descriptions to minimize it. Mark chapter 8, verses 36 through 38. Mark 8, 36 through 38. Where Jesus said, what, For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. I underscored my words. In that passage. And regardless of the age in which man hears God's words, it's that word, those words, which he must believe. Because it is in that word that he gave the record of his son. And to be ashamed of that word is to believe some other word, another gospel, which means you who do so are an adulterous generation. You've been unfaithful to God's word by believing there is some other word that will save you. God didn't point us to commentaries written by man, although some of them are sometimes helpful. But you know there are preachers who are too lazy to study the Bible. And I'm telling you, Brother Doug, you know it. It's not something you just do in 20 minutes and say, all right, well, I'm ready to preach. You don't study it for 30 minutes saying, well, my lesson will be about 30 minutes long, so I'm going to study the Bible 30 minutes. It's a long process if you do it right. And you pray God to guide you to all truth and to help you understand those difficult passages because here where we teach verse by verse, you can't skip around them or the people will know. And you will be an unfaithful Bible teacher. And some of those lazy preachers will substitute, they will use the commentaries written about passages in order to preach. And at the end of the, the day, uh, those commentaries may be wrong. Rather than simply going to God's word, he did not point us to the commentaries of man. He did not tell us to just believe what this denomination over here is teaching, after all, it's the largest denomination in the United States. It's the largest Baptist convention in the United States or maybe even in the world. It's his word. Yes, that completed writing almost 2,000 years ago when it was completed. From that time until now, it's always been back there that we have been pointed so when the commandments Hezekiah kept were the ones the Lord commanded Moses around 750 years before, it taught us that the standard never changes and it never moves. Now, if by keeping those commandments the Lord commanded Moses, Hezekiah also obeyed what Samuel taught the people and what Hosea taught the people, which I believe Hosea was active in this day that we're reading about. If by obeying God's commandments to Moses, he also obeyed what Samuel and Hosea and the other prophets taught, 
Well, then praise the Lord, because that means Samuel and Hosea were teaching what God commanded Moses. If you obey what Brother Fulton or I teach you from God's Word, then praise God. But all you're doing is obeying the same thing that the Apostle John wrote, the same thing that the writers of the Bible wrote, because we've taught you to go back to God's words and believe them yourself, to examine what is taught and preached in here, to take notes, mental or otherwise. And I'll share with you an example of how Satan tries to keep this from happening. When Brother Fulton pastored Willow Springs Baptist Church, it's a long time ago, my wife and I attended a missions conference there, and one of the prison missionaries spoke, and he told about how he was raised in a Catholic church. And he said he began having some questions. So he asked his mother those questions, and she said, go to the priest. Well, there's a problem, but that's what she told him. And at some point, this missionary, when he was a child, asked the priest for a Bible. Now, you know what he was, the Spirit of God led him to ask for a Bible because that had the original word in it, that had what he needed to know. And that priest told him, you don't need a Bible, we'll tell you what's in there. Now, that's not what we need, that's not what Hezekiah did. Hezekiah didn't go to these weak-kneed priests in his day who were a great part of why Israel was in the bad shape it was in. He kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. He went back 750 years, just like we go back 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years almost to get truth. In Hezekiah's day, those priests were apostate. They were teaching error. They were not being faithful to their office. And instead of keeping the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses, what if Hezekiah had said to the priest in his day, Hey, just tell me what you think I need to know. I'm a busy king. I have a lot of king stuff I have to do, and I don't have time for all that. You just tell me what I need to know. That would have been a mess. Hezekiah went to the original source, recognizing that the commandments that God commanded Moses were the wellspring of all truth, not what some priest said about it. And this is the very reason we ask you to bring your Bibles to church. We don't want you to trust us to tell you what you need to know. We want to show you the original source, explain it to you so you'll know what it means, and then let you search the Scriptures daily to see if the things we teach are so. That's exactly what the Bereans did in Acts chapter 17, verses 10 through 12. Acts 17, 10 through 12, and I'll read this and we'll close here in a moment. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogues of the Jews. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Therefore many of them believed also of honorable women which were Greeks and of men not a few. So these Bereans did not just say amen to whatever Paul and Barnabas taught, as highly qualified as they were. And rather than rebuking those Bereans, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, wrote that the Bereans were more noble. 
They received the word with readiness of mind. They searched the scriptures. They wanted confirmation of what the apostles taught. So they went to the original source. And that's why it's important that Hezekiah kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses 750 years before. And let's pray we are about to be dismissed. Lord, we're so thankful for those who have come, for those who have tuned in, for the people who may watch later on. Thank you for your truth. Thanking you for helping us to explain it and to understand it. And as we leave this place, may we take it with us, meditate upon it, and may it make a difference in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.